Let's turn our friends as the Lord would help us to this uh, chapter we read. The story of the prodigal son, which we began looking at in the morning. Now, in some ways, the most significant character in this parable is actually the man that we call, or is known as, the elder brother in the verses running from 25 down to the end. At least in terms of the context, that is the case. Because Jesus spoke this parable, as we noticed in the morning, to challenge the criticism of the scribes and Pharisees regarding his own method of teaching, and in particular the people that he was associating with. So this is a response to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, as far as I can understand, in all likelihood, these are the people that are represented by the elder brother. Now, this highlights a, a problem for uh, preachers of the gospel. Um, and the problem is uh, deciding on how much content do you put into a sermon, and what do you put in, and what do you leave out. And uh, if you will pardon me this evening, I'm not going to deal with the elder brother. I just want to mention this to you that I'm aware in my own mind of where the thrust of the parable is, but I would like to focus this evening on the prodigal son, and especially expanding on the points we raised in the morning, brought out by the two minor stories at the beginning of the chapter. So these two stories, as we saw in the morning, verses 4 to 10, they are uh, an x-ray, an insight into the thinking and the experiences of the prodigal son in the far country. And we noticed that these three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, they are all one parable. They're not three parables. They are one so that the first two stories introduce us to the third. Now, and by the way, um, I, I'm, I'm always amazed at parables, biblical parables. Yeah, there were parables before Jesus ever came to earth. There are some parables in the Old Testament, but our Lord perfected the art of putting across his message in parables. He, he did a brilliant job of it and, and, and we're still full of admiration for the teaching of all of these parables. Uh, most of them uh, can be understood by children, although there are one or two that are uh, rather more complicated than that. Now this third story, the story of the parable son, it's a story that never changes. It doesn't matter how much the world progresses. It doesn't matter how much how sophisticated mankind may become. It doesn't matter what culture you will go into. You will find the thrust of this story in every nation and in every culture on this earth. Prodigal 
sons and daughters. Now, the reality of that, I believe, is in part why we found Jesus during his earthly ministry weeping over Jerusalem. That was the holy city of God. And who lived in that holy city but the people who claimed to be the children of God? Now, not many of them, I don't suppose, sank into the depths of sin the way this prodigal son did. But nevertheless, they were prodigal in other ways. They were not walking with God. Indeed, they were walking contrary to God. They were walking in defiance of God. And I believe that's what, if I can use the phrase, broke our Lord's heart and left him weeping over that holy city. So he's given us this story of a rebellious young man who brought disaster upon himself, who broke his parents' heart and no doubt caused all sorts of disruption in the family circle. And perhaps worst of all, he found himself a hair breadth from hell. Now that's the reality, my friends. A hair breadth from hell. And the parable is, of course, told in the way that only Jesus Christ could tell it. This brilliance comes through again and again and again. Now I find the parable hugely encouraging, not only to prodigal sons and daughters, but it's encouraging to the parents of prodigal children. Parents who are burdened for their children. Now I'm quite sure that some of you here this evening are burdened for your children, even though your children may not have sunk into this depth of sin and iniquity. And yet you know they are every bit as far from God as this man was. As I said in the morning, there are no degrees to lostness. And I find this parable hugely encouraging because I can relate personally to the theme of the parable. Now it's also a treasury of wisdom, I believe, for politicians and for social engineers. If they want to tackle, really tackle, the ills and woes of juvenile delinquency in our society, they would do well to study this parable. They would learn more from this story than they would from a lifetime of studying Freud. I think it's a crying shame that our political engineers don't pay not even lip service to the Bible these days. They've got the remedy they're looking for. They've got it in the Holy Bible, in the Word of God, in the laws of God. But they prefer their own ways. Now the main themes Jesus brings out here are sin, guilt, rebelliousness, immorality, repentance, love, restoration and redemption. Sums it all up. Armed with all of that, you can approach any society on the face of the earth and offer them hope. 
and where are politicians and our social engineers to fix their minds on the principles of scripture and even on the story itself I think we would end up with a better world we would end up with a more stable society we would end up with far less broken homes and we would end up with children who wouldn't be delinquent but hopeful so let's consider for a while then the prodigal son let's look first of all at his inheritance or the prodigal and his inheritance verse 12 father give me the portion of goods that fall to me now in early Old Testament uh, history the eldest son was usually the heir of the family now on occasion God would set that aside as he did for Jacob and Esau as one example. Now, in later years, down the line, generations down the line in Old Testament history, this rule was adjusted, if not ignored altogether, so that all male children seem to have received a portion of the inheritance. And that's the claim that this younger son is now making of his father. Give me the portion of my inheritance. Now there's there's nothing sinister in this request. He wasn't out of order in asking for this. In fact, there's a solemn lesson here for all parents. One day, if your children aren't old enough, they will be and they will want to Leave home. Maybe they haven't got much, you haven't got much of an inheritance to pass on to them, but they will want to set up themselves in families and in society and make that mark on their day and generation. It's just the way it is. And that's what we have here initially, at least. There was nothing sinister in asking for his inheritance. Now, this son, he gave no indication whatsoever of what his plans were. And nor did he, you notice, immediately disappear. He didn't grab the inheritance and run as if he couldn't wait to get away from his father, verse 13. Not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey. So he had around for a few days at least. And even then, when he left, there was no reason for his father to worry. There were no alarm bells ringing for the father. As I said, that's what children do eventually. They leave home, much as parents would want otherwise, but that's what they do. However, something evil had taken hold of this young man's mind. And that's always a tinge of my friends for our children that something evil may take hold of their minds. Something here that would blind this boy to his own foolishness, that would blind him to the anguish he caused his parents, and that would blind him to all the warning signs that were there for everybody to see as he drifted further and further 
and further away from God. By that time, the inheritance was evidently <coughs> burning a hole in his pocket, if I can use that phrase. The pleasures and lusts of life were drawing him in more and more, and it began to fill his every horizon. This is what happens, my friends. When someone is given over to the pleasures and lusts of this world, they, 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 they paralyze you. They fill you everything. You don't want anything else but more and more pleasure, more and more fun. <coughs> and the more he indulged in loose living, the deader his conscience became. the less he thought of home and the more he shut God out of his thinking. My friends, there is no greater tragedy in this world than watching a boy or a girl or a man or a woman on this downward spiral of sin. Nothing more tragic. Wisely, Jesus doesn't dwell on this. How wise he was. He simply refers to it as riotous living. That's what's put in the old translation. Verse 13. You don't need to be an Einstein to work out what that means. Riotous living. In other words, he abandoned all moral scruples. It's a lifestyle, my friends, that ruins multitudes. A lifestyle that destroys dignity. A lifestyle that leads to despair and a lifestyle that breaks a thousand one hearts. In due time, the inheritance inevitably ran out. And so did everything else. It all lay in the ruins of the far country. But then came reality for the prodigal son, verse 14. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began <coughs> to be in want. Now the tragedy of this young man and the tragedy of every prodigal son and daughter is it doesn't have to be like that. It didn't have to be like that for this man. So many sons and daughters, my friends, abandon their upbringing and abandon the standards with which they were brought up. What for? For an elusive utopia of pleasure fun and frolics illusion and not only that the little fun they do get out of that kind of living never ever lasts it hardly lasts 24 hours but this thing this point is very true it always brings its own pain eventually always 
It's the devil's lie, my friends, to our young people that freedom and happiness lie beyond parental discipline. It's the devil's lie. So many swallow it down like water. Every day, my friends, a thousand prodigal sons and daughters fall for that lie. They discover that that lie eventually leads to bitter regret, to shame and endless remorse. Not to mention the threat of hell itself. Perhaps some of you can relate to that in your own past lives. Perhaps there is a bit of the prodigal lurking in your history. I think more of Lord's people than would care to admit openly do have these symptoms lurking in their hearts and in their lives. Let me look secondly at the prodigal in Verse 17. He came to himself. The path to this crossroads took the prodigal into the darkest corners of the far country. And he was reduced as a Jew to the mortifying experience of having to eat pig's fruit. What they used to call swill once upon a time. And you can't get anything more mortifying for a Jew than to have to eat pig's fruit. Verse 16 He would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And not only so, but his partying friends, well, they're all gone, man. They're all gone. They were fair with the friends from, from the beginning. Verse 16 again No man gave unto him. There wasn't a kind soul on his entire horizon. And it's only when he hit rock bottom that something clicked in his mind. Something clicked in his mind. He came to himself. In other words, for the first time since he left home, he began thinking straight. For the first time, he came to himself. Now, in the background of all of this, unknown to the prodigal son, is the guiding hand of God, directing providence in such a way that it enabled this man to begin thinking in this way. So as he rationalised his circumstances, he begins to see things far more clearly. The disaster of his life, the domestic abuse, the abuse of privileges, what he did to his father and no doubt to his mother. It's all becoming plain to him now. Isn't it a shame, my friends, that some people have to hit rock bottom before they begin to think straight? Isn't that a shame? 
However, I suppose we could say better late than never. Now, the dark powers that scrambled this boy's head, the dark powers that paralysed his mind and blinded his eyes, they began slowly to lose their grip upon him because God was at work here in the background. He came to himself. But you know, my friends, coming to oneself is not coming to God. These two things are very, very different. He came to himself, but he still has a long way to go. A long way to go. The Holy Spirit was at work in this man's life. And the Holy Spirit was at work in your life when he first led you to the path that drew you to Christ. And if the Holy Spirit hadn't striven with you, you would have continued on your merry way right into the jaws of hell itself. And every born-again Christian owes an eternal debt of gratitude to the Holy Spirit for striving with us and for leading us, sometimes for a long, long time, before we eventually realize what is happening in our lives. Here's the good shepherd at work, my friends. This is how the shepherd works, by the way, of course. It's through his Holy Spirit. And there he was, nobody knew him, in that far country. There he was, by his Spirit, searching, 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 calling, 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 until something penetrated at last into this boy's heart and mind. And this lost sinner, so like that lost sheep, so like, like that lifeless coin, is at last like, or becoming like, the dry bones in Ezekiel's valley. Don't you love that story? Don't you love the part of that story where we are told there was a shaking and a rattling? Indications of life movement in a Godward direction. Well, here's a prodigal now thinking deeply about hope. Verse 17. How many hired servants of my father have bread enough unto spare and I perish with hunger? In other words, his father's slaves were well fed as he lived on pig food. So he made made a major decision in verse 18. I will arise, he says, and go to my father. You know, my friends, that can be a hard decision. For many prodigal sons and daughters, that can be a hard decision. The decision to turn around. The decision to eat humble pie. The decision to acknowledge to loved ones, you did them wrong, is a hard, hard thing. Pride, shame, fear, much else besides, 
all make repentance hard for prodigal sons and daughters. So there, meanwhile, at the crossroads, the prodigal had to make a life-changing decision. Now that decision, my friends, cannot be made unless one is thinking along the right lines. And thinking along the right lines in this sense means acknowledging you can't do it of your friend. You need help. Not the help of a doctor, not the help of a psychiatrist or psychologist, or the help of a minister even. You need help from above. You need the Holy Spirit of God to come into your life and into your experience and help you turn your life around. I want to say something here that I find very significant. It's not in the parable, but it is in an application of the parable. And it is this. One doesn't have to go to a far country to stray away from God, even very far away from God. You can stray from God every bit as far as this son did in the confines of your own home, within your own domestic circumstances. You know that I had an uncle, my mother's brother, and he confessed to me on one occasion that he had been backslidden for 28 years. And he never wants in this church. You don't have to go to the far country. You can backslide in your own home and with your own family. And in that sense, there's little difference between the prodigal in the far country and anybody else running away from, from God, even if you never leave your home. Let me move on to look at the prodigal coming home verse 18 I will arise and go to my father now at this stage we learn that there is something more than regret more than remorse in the prodigal's heart and mind and however desperate he is and I believe he is to be reconciled to his father more so is his conviction regarding God look at verse 18 again I have sinned against heaven. Where did that come from? I have sinned against heaven. He broke his father's heart. He brought sadness and shame on his entire family. But the route back home must be via God. You cannot leave God out of this equation. That means one thing, primarily, my friends, evangelical repentance. So whatever offence he had given his father and his family, greater was his sin against God. I have sinned against heaven. This man is now where David was when he wrote that psalm we were singing a moment ago. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Whatever I did to my father, whatever I did to my mother, whatever I did to my friends, whatever I did to my colleagues, against thee, the only, have I sinned. 
So this prayer and confession pours out of uh, this is in verse 18 again. I will say to my Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. He broke his father's heart. He squandered all his hard-earned money. But you know, my friends, none of that could condemn him to hell. Notice his words again. I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Notice these two words, against and before. The gulf between them, spiritually speaking, my friends, cannot be measured. It cannot be measured. It's against heaven and before my Father. So begins his long journey home. Which, in the economy of this parable, <coughs> excuse me, reflects his journey back to God, I believe. And the homecoming in verses 20 to 24 is a memorable picture, isn't it? You need to have a heart of stone not to be moved by this picture. The love and the mercy and the pity and the empathy shown by his father surely echoes the depths of God's eternal compassion and benevolence and clemency and commitment and love regarding his own children in this world. So when the watching father saw the prodigal on the horizon, can you imagine, can you try for a moment and enter into his mind, enter into his feelings, enter into his emotions, as he looked and saw him coming over the horizon. This is one of the most exciting moments in the entire scriptures apart from the story of Jesus Christ. He couldn't wait. He couldn't hold back. Verse 20. He had compassion and ran to meet him. He couldn't wait. The disaster the son had made of his life, the money he had squandered, the shameful lifestyle, it doesn't matter anymore. The father doesn't see that anymore. There's not a word of rebuke from the father. There's no condemnation, no scorn. He fell on his neck and kissed him. I know some of you are parents of prodigal sons and daughters. Wouldn't you love to be in this position? Wouldn't you love to fall on the neck of your child and kiss them, knowing that they have come back from a far country? What a powerful thing, lovers. You know, there's a strange phrase on love in the Bible. And I have to confess, I took a long time to understand it. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Love is strong as death. You wonder what that meant. Love is as strong 
as death. Strange words. You see, there's nothing in this world as strong as death. It marches through time every single day, conquering every living thing. It cannot be resisted, it cannot be defeated, and it cannot be denied. But here's something that easily matches it. Love is as strong as death. It conquers and it overcomes. And as Peter reminds us, it covers a multitude of sins. And that's a reality for which every believer should be eternally grateful. I want you to notice three tokens of the Father's love in verse 22. Bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The robe, the shoes, and the ring and the shoes. Now notice I'm just going to uh, comment briefly on each of these. Notice first of all the robe. The Bible contrasts for us the robes with which we were born into this world, our, our natural robes. And, and Isaiah the prophet comments on these robes in the eyes of God. Whoever you are, Goody two-shoes, upright, decent, civil, the best citizen in the world, whoever you are, in the eyes of God, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But the robe we receive from the Lord Jesus, that's also described by Isaiah. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Not my own righteousness, but the righteousness he worked out for me and it covers me totally. <clears throat> and that robe is further described for us in the final book of the Bible. Listen to this description. Fine linen clean and white which is the righteousness of the saints oh my friends how encouraging that is I look at you and I see nothing but the evidence of sin you look at me and you see the same thing but I know that in the eyes of God I am dressed and robed with this robe that is fine linen clean and white which is the righteousness of the saints. Oh, my friends, make sure that you are not in your natural robes here this evening. Make sure that you are robed with the righteousness of Christ. The second thing, the shoes. Now, the prodigal returned home with clothes and shoes in tatters. Indeed, if he was wearing shoes at all. However, Viewing this topic in a wider biblical sense, we understand that feet and shoes frequently refer to a walk in life. 
and a walk before God. You remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17? Walk before me and be thou perfect. We were singing a moment ago in Psalm 40. He put my feet on a rock. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. You remember and have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. Well, here's a prodigal's father urging him now, walk a different path from the one. Walk a different path. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the ring. Now, in ancient culture, rings carried significance. You may remember that Pharaoh gave his ring to Joseph and a Persian king gave his ring to Mordecai. They they were quite significant in a symbolic sense. However, the symbolic philosophy of the ring is in its shape. It's a never-ending circle. And that symbolises the never-ending love that a husband should have for a wife, for a wife, for a husband. It's, it's, it's hugely symbolic, but very, very significant. Now, when we become part of the bride of Christ, we are not given a ring in that sense. We're given something far better. Something far better. We are given the purity of God's eternal love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what is said about that love in the Bible? Or what God says about that love in the Bible? As that love is passed on to you, the believer, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What's an everlasting love? A love that had no beginning. And a love that I shall have no end. An everlasting love. Perhaps the most significant, and I realise our time is going, the most significant token of the Father's love is the fatted calf, mentioned in verse 23. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Now this certainly is the most symbolic as far as the gospel story is concerned. Now, this calf was fattened for this occasion. In other words, it was prepared for a special occasion. But what this father did, ever so lovingly, yet pales into insignificance in comparison to what God the Father has done for his people in this world. He prepared his lamb to be the sacrifice for our sins. Now, what's the difference between this fatted calf and the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world? Well, there are many, many differences, but let me just mention this. The celebrations centered around this fatted calf. Peter died. Peter died. 
as such things must. Whereas the celebration and joy in a believer's heart, those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that celebration, that joy, it will never end. It will never peter out. In fact, the best is yet to come. We've only tasted. We've only tasted, my friends, of how great this celebration and this joy is for us as Christians. And we know here we only enjoy it in fleeting moments. But the time is coming when we shall enjoy it uninterrupted eternally uninterrupted the Bible speaks of two things that will feature particular as part of what the Bible itself calls the unspeakable uh, the joy unspeakable and full of glory two things number one the knowledge that God will never again consider our sin our guilt and our shame. Now, one of the things, if I were to do a survey amongst you who are professing Christians here this evening and ask you, what is it that most frequently interferes with your joy as a Christian? Wouldn't you say something to do with your sin? Something to do with the guilt that's lurking in your mind? Well, when you enter heaven, my friend, eternally reverberating throughout all eternity will be the promise of God the Father. Listen to how it's put. Thou hast cast all our sins behind thy back. Thy sins and iniquities I will remember no more. God never forgets anything. But God chooses not to remember. And this is something he will never remember. Your sins, your iniquities and your guilt. So your joy will continue uninterrupted throughout all eternity. The second thing, this fatted calf symbolises the lamb without spot and without blemish. Now we understand from the uh, word pictures of scripture that in heaven, it's an immensely difficult place to, to try and think in a, in a rational kind of way, but we are given this idea that we are going to live in heaven eternally <coughs> gathered around the throne. Isn't that what we are told in the book of Revelations? Now there's three things I want you to notice about how this is presented. First of all, there stood a lamb as it had been slain. We will never forget, my friends, the cost of our salvation. We will never forget the ransom that was paid for our freedom. There is the crucified Christ of God. A lamb, as it had been slain. And then it tells us where this lamb is. He's in the midst 
of the throne. In other words, he will be filling your every horizon throughout eternity. And the third thing, it tells us of the song we are going to be singing eternally. They sing the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Is that, my friend, how you imagine eternity is going to be for yourself? Is that how you imagine yourself to exist after death, through the endless ages of eternity, amongst that blessed Fellowship of people around the throne of God, praising the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you, singing the song forever and ever and ever. Is that how you imagine yourself? Or is eternity going to mean something very different for you? Something very different. (laughs) Think, my friends. Think, think deeply, even this very Sabbath evening, where are you going to be throughout eternity? Amen. Let us pray. Blessed our most holy God, we give thanks for thy word, we give thanks for thy grace, we give thanks for thy spirit. But oh, how we give thanks for him who loved us and gave himself for us, our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to walk with him, to be robed with his righteousness, to have that everlasting love burning in our hearts, and to make sure that the little time we are left in this world that we are walking in the ways of God. Keep us in thy fear, part us with thy blessing, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our concluding praise, friends, is in Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And we're going to sing from verse 25. Verse 25, Whom I have, have I in heaven's eye, but thee, O Lord, alone. And in the earth, whom I desire, besides thee, there is none. My flesh and heart doth faint and fail, but God doth fail me never. For of my heart, God is a strength and portion forever. To the end of the psalm. Whom I
remember the prayer meeting on Thursday night in the hall across the road, and the Sabbath services uh, next week will be taken by Reverend Donald MacDonald. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <coughs> Thank <clears throat>